today I have Limpita with me. Um, and Limpita is a Substacker, or at least I found you uh, via Substack. Um, and you write about detransitioning and digital life, if, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Basically, yeah. I, there's there's stuff related to that that I talk about, um, but that's that's basically the whole thing. I feel like detransitioners are really having a moment right now. I think so too. I didn't. I didn't realize that me waking up to what had happened to me would be part of a zeitgeist, but it really seems like that's the case because I didn't see any of this uh, prior to this year. Yeah, neither. I don't think I had ever. I knew a detransitioner in person from high school, um, but then. Other than her, I had never I had never seen it online, um, but it, it's it's interesting because it seems to be like dovetailing with this sort of like Tumblr nostalgia. Um, you know, we're we're about ten years out from Tumblr's peak, uh, and it, I think it's really interesting that detransitioning is now in the in the public eye at the same time. Yeah, and it's it's happened like it almost every detransitioner that I've talked to um at least all the female ones the male ones a little bit different I'm male if anyone doesn't know already but um the female ones I talked to like they're all they were all on tumblr and and the more I talked to them the more like our sort of experiences there really overlap especially when it comes to like the developing the magical beliefs around um trans and transitioning and everything so it it's it is like a massive shift from 10 years ago where we were just like pretty much everyone in this scene was sort of at first like oh well we need um more you know like more self-id more everything like that like trans is you know you can you choose your own pronouns and stuff and like you are the gender you say you are and then all of a sudden like it just flipped immediately um not immediately I guess it took a while but this like it's pretty big now you know so yeah it's yeah it's huge and it you know it it feels like I don't know how to put this I I think there's a lot of people who are like chronicling the stories of detransitioners and they're they're doing so in like a very well-meaning way and it's really it's really in the spirit of inquiry and also like highlighting abuses that have gone on that I've also noticed it's, it's been, I mean, obviously it's been very politicized and I feel like that, that unfortunately is, is because it's politicized, certain things get, um, get amplified. Other things get downplayed. Certain communities want to completely shut these stories down and it really shouldn't be a political, a, you know, it shouldn't be a political issue. It, it, it it should be approached first at what, what happened and who did it happen to? I, I, unfortunately, I think it, it was destined to be a political issue from the outset, just because there were existing groups that had a very strong political incentive, like the trans rights activists, like there's a very strong political incentive for them to shut down any sort of conversation about detransition. But then there are also other groups like, um, right-wing Christian groups or uh, radical feminists who basically from the outset, like even 40 years ago um, with all this trans stuff, like they were pretty much always against it. So these factions already existed and this wave of detransitioners like didn't really have like an, like an explanation for what happened to them and sort of found themselves like corralled into various ideological camps before or after like some of them stay with the TRAs and they're like well I mean I detransition it wasn't right for me but it might be right for other people and then others go down like totally different avenues altogether um and and unfortunately like you know I like on a personal level I don't think it should necessarily be all that political um I mean I'm you know I, I'm being pretty public with stuff right now but I'm still like working through things myself I'm not even detransitioned yet um but just because there isn't there isn't this that there hasn't been this conversation there are people trying to shut it down and not just trans people but like 
you know, large corporations like Twitter are trying to shut it down too. Like, I don't think there really was a way for this to just be like a private personal thing. I think it, it, it had to be more political, especially because there are a lot of kids involved and they really don't understand the stakes. I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, it, it is inevitable that it's, it's a highly politicized topic. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's too bad. You know, it kind of feels like this is going to sound so, so weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, when I was like 10 or 11, um, the community I was growing up in, uh, like it felt like Palestine was a bad word. And it like, looking back, it's like, that's obviously untrue. Right. And it kind of feels the same way. Like it's, there's like this ambiance around it where it's like, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble if I like talk to someone about their lived experience. And you know, like this is, this is your life. It's not a, it's not a propaganda piece. It's, it's what actually happened to you. Yeah. Um, you know, while I, while I was in trans community and stuff, I mean, there basically was no acknowledgement that D-trans ever happened. Like the, they were always like pushing these stats that were like 99% of uh, trans people like remain trans, like they, they remain transition. And the 1% that don't just have like health concerns or something else. But like the whole like trans is an innate identity thing couldn't be questioned whatsoever. And now fortunately, like we have some statistics to show like, no, actually the majority of people detransition. And is it really it, the majority? It's the majority. It's the majority. It's um, Lisa Lippman recently published stuff earlier this year, like I think maybe just a couple months ago um, that showed that even in adulthood, it's like 65% detransition. Um, and for children, wow. it's like 90%. So yeah. That's, um, wow. I had, I had no idea. I, I actually didn't know what, what the rate was. I, I kind of had the assumption that because it, because, you know, like I, I remember when, when I was, again, this is something I'm, I feel so like uncomfortable saying, but I think it is worth saying. Like when I was in middle school, uh, it was right at the transition period of gay people being accepted and like suddenly everyone was gay. And then it, you know, it shook out that about like, I don't know, like 40% of the people who came out really, you know, went on to be gay adults and are, are, are gay. Um, and I figured it'd be like roughly the same thing. Like, you know, most people probably, or I said 40%, but like, you know, most people are, but there's going to be a handful of people who aren't. Um, but geez, I, I had no idea that it was, it, it was that, that skewed. It, it is. And, and I think, I think there's, um, I think there's sort of a, a way that people, at least in the way that the NGOs were talking about it, the way the media talks about it. Like, I think a lot of people think of trans as like, super gay um like it's it's gayer than gay it's the next thing after gay but it's it's really not and and I think the main difference is that like if you are gay like that's just a fact about you like that's that's real like that is a thing that 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 does happen but there's no one that's really at least you know this might be controversial for me to say but I I think based off everything I've seen and everything I, I've been through, like, I don't think anybody is actually like innately trans. I think some people just tolerate um, medically transitioning better than others and they have better excuses for coping and whatnot. And some of them like actually really, really want to transition, but that doesn't actually mean that they're like quote unquote trans in, inside themselves. Whereas somebody is actually like gay you know, and a lot of trans people are gay too. Like, um, so like gay in the sense that they're like homosexual, like right. for the real, the real gay, well, not mean, like the fake one. Nobody, I mean, that seems like a, an extreme stance to take, right? Like surely there, there is some population of people who, you, you know, they, they don't feel at home or, you know, like properly represented by their, their body in a way that is, you know, more extreme than, than other, than other forms of dysphoria? Um, maybe, I don't know. That population would be extremely small. And, and I don't really think that there's a way to check for it, honestly. 
Um, the way that it's kind of done right now is just if you're suffering um, with gender dysphoria, however that manifests, like whether you're a gay person who's um, just really uncomfortable with being gay and you're hoping that this will make you straight, quote unquote, or if you're, and this is, you know, the other controversial aspect of it, or if you're an autogynophile or if you're an autoandrophile, meaning you get um like it's a, a fetish to be the other sex like to physically embody the other sex like um you know you can get serious dysphoria from that or you could be a sexual abuse victim you could be a grooming victim whatever the case is there are a lot of reasons why people might be super super uncomfortable in their bodies and might attribute that to feeling uncomfortable with their gender or with their sex when you know and, and you know, the, the severity of that discomfort is usually what informs whether they're going to transition or not, whether a doctor is going to enable them to transition or not. And that's a really bad way of going about it. Cause the more this goes on, the more we're seeing people who have like addictions to self-harm people with eating disorders, people with all sorts of other latent issues that are being like pushed under the gender dysphoria umbrella and they're getting sterilized and they're getting like you know, hormones and surgery and everything. And it's, I think it's a, I feel like if that, if that tiny, tiny, tiny minority does actually exist, like their, their existence is sort of being used as an excuse to do all this other stuff. That's basically just one giant experiment. And even for that minority, like it, it would be an experiment. So that's why I'm very hesitant to say that there is that minority that does exist. Cause then people who probably shouldn't be transitioning are going to use that. And they're going to say like, I belong to the true trans. Like I, that's, that's who I am. That's what I think I am. Um, and they're not going to think about like all the other issues that might be driving them to transition. That's interesting. That's sort of like the other side of, you know, something you saw on Tumblr a lot, which is like the whole uh, true scum debate, you know, which is, uh, just to, if anyone's not familiar with it, um, there on Tumblr, I want to say in like the early 2010s that you would have these two two groups of people, like uh, one group who believed that uh, you know gender dysphoria is a, a medical condition and you, you, it should be gate uh, gate kept, and then one you know one group of people that basically thought you know being trans could mean anything. And you sort of, if you you feel like a woman, you are a woman. If you feel like a man, you are a man. And it, it's from that second group that you also have uh, Mogai uh, spring out of. And those are all the gender labels that are like, you know, like arrow gender. And they're kind of obscure. And there's maybe like one person who's ever used the word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never heard the other, I've actually, I've never heard the other side of, of, of that, which is, um, you know, no one should transition because transgender people are, are such a, a small minority. Um, I like, I, I, I still personally take the uh, stance that the like transgender, transgender people as like innate, like don't exist. There are just certain people that find the idea of cosmetically enhancing themselves to look like the other sex attractive for whatever reason. Um, and that's, not popular in in the current um, zeitgeist, but I think that that's something that's sort of gaining ground, at least among a certain subset of detransitioners. Um, because on the face of it, it is kind of ridiculous. We, um, like we are our bodies, basically. Like we are who we were born to be, kind of. So anything that we do to make ourselves look like not us, that's not really us. You know, I don't know how to phrase that. No, but. I, I know, I, 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 I'm with you, and I, I think that a lot of a lot of trans people, um, or you know, pe- like trans rights activists, for example, are putting forth a similar argument. I, I've been seeing more and more, kind of in that that uh, line of thought, um, tweets where trans people are saying something to the effect of, "I wish that medical transition was viewed more as body modification," and. Um, was written and spoken about the same way we talk about tattoos and piercings. And I mean, 
two years ago, that would have been considered the most offensive taboo thing to say because it would have delegitimized it. But now it it seems like no one is really on the same page about what transition means. Yeah, because there's also a lot of different ways to go about it. Um, And actually, there are some conversations I've been having with um, a friend of mine um, who thinks that like the term transition itself implies something that isn't true and that you're transitioning from one sex to the other, but it's not true. Like you're still the same sex that you are. You're just giving yourself a hormonal imbalance or you're trying to like, you know, or you're just dressing like the other sex and that doesn't actually mean that you are. Um, So there's some other word that has to be used about it, but you know, calling it a cosmetic enhancement, I think is more, I I wouldn't say enhancement though, because that implies that it's like better or whatever, but it's a cosmetic alteration or manipulation. I think that's more true to form. Um, But there's also a lot that goes on beyond just the cosmetic angle, which is why there are a lot of um, people who have transitioned and ended up like seriously disabled. Um, and it's, or dead. So it's, it's not, I don't know, it, it's controversial. Um, but I also, I do, th- I agree with you. I do think that two years ago, it would have delegitimized the whole thing. But now because of how widespread it's become, um, and, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is spread through social contagion. Like, I think it is, I think people are more open to saying it should just be considered, oh, sorry. Ransom? Ransom? Oh my bad. I'm dog sitting and yeah, sorry. It's okay. Um, sorry. Uh, the, yeah, I, I think they are being more open about it, but the, I think that's also just because like transition is now accessible to people who don't even have like any sort of dysphoria, there's no gatekeeping whatsoever. You can just sort of sort of show up to a gender clinic and not even necessarily lie your way to hormones. You can just kind of say, I want hormones and don't really have to explain yourself. You just sign a form and they give it to you. So yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's the main reason why people are talking about it so openly like that now. It's just because it is basically already like that. It's, it's interesting because I, and I don't know. I'm curious to see where these conversations go because I've I've rarely seen transitioning placed into like the greater context of we live in a a society where most like there's two forms of like or maybe three forms of aspiration that are like really common in American culture, which is like augmenting your body, um, then like more lifestyle things like traveling, and then sort of just like wealth again like you know, some abstract idea of like, I'm rich. And I feel like those are sort of the three forms or, and maybe like fame uh, of things that people aspire to. And I never see uh, people talk about like, you know, where does transition play into a culture where uh, self-care is equated with like buying skin products and, uh, or, you know, injecting filler into your face, um, where, you know, even exercise is completely divorced from any kind of idea of health. It's about augmenting your body to to live longer, to look better, you know, to do any number of things. But it's like, it's not like, it, it's we're not very like holistic in how we think about it, our identity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, I think it's very directly related to those things. Um, it, it's first of all, I mean, it's a desire to be something you can never be like, it's permanently aspirational. And and I think that that's something that a lot of, like, I think you see that a lot in like weirder parts of the internet where you have these people that go through like, very extreme, like, I think about Ollie London a lot. Um, the guy trying to like, turn himself into a Korean, like, there are a lot of people like that. And I don't think it's that different from transgenderism. Um, I think it's only different in the specific target to become something else, but I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it speaks to a very specific erasure of the self 
in, in a very narcissistic kind of way. Um, and I think that that's true for both sexes. A lot of people like to say that it's only the men that are doing that, but it really is. It does seem to be both both sexes that are engaging in that kind of high narcissism to the extent that, you know, you literally don't recognize yourself, but you still love the reflection. You know, I don't know if I would call it, I, so I'm, I'm with you um, for the most part, but I don't know if I would call it narcissism because I feel I feel like the internet does something that we haven't really like, uh, we haven't really grappled with where it just divorces us from our physical self so much that what then when we log off and we're forced to confront our actual body, we become disoriented. And like any big subculture online I've noticed is really like really hinges on this idea of like altering the body or somehow divorcing yourself from the body, like uh, pro-anorexia, uh, right-wing bodybuilders, furries, other kin, um, people who are like addicted to MMOs. It's all about like, there's, you know, there's a person on the computer and then there's like the, the spirit on, you know, within the computer. Uh, true. Actually. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Um, cause I, you know, I, I'm not sure narcissism is the right word for every case of this, but you're 100% right. And, um, I think, and this this has happened to a lot of people, but like for me, like pretending to be a girl online sort of led me to believe I should be a girl in real life. Like people reacted to me online as if I was a woman already. So when I wasn't getting treated like one in real life, that was extremely disorienting. Um, and I also, I mean, I did develop like eating disorders from being online um and from other things too but being online like didn't help that because like I was looking at people and people of both sexes that were just like insanely thin and some of them weren't even like I mean there are people like removing ribs and stuff they're like removing organs to get skinnier and you know and then they end up in your newsfeed and then you wonder why you're like you feel so fat and so sick yeah, there's something about there's something about anorexia in particular and the internet that like I haven't been able to crack it, but they they're just like they belong together and like one kind of encourages the other. And I you know, it's I I don't even know how to explain what I mean. I just I just feel like I see the fingerprints of anorexia all over the internet. It absolutely. Um I think I, this, I mean, this is wild speculation, but I think it's it's because like our news feeds are curated for us specifically, um, and they they play on all our emotions, but all our most intense emotions because that's what keeps us engaged is is those very intense feelings. So, you know, if you see somebody who has a body type. Like if you see somebody basically whose lifestyle you covet, then once once you log off and you live your actual life, like you are going to feel so inadequate because you're still comparing yourself to this person that was literally dropped into your feed specifically to make you long for it. Yeah, I think I mean I I, I think you're totally right. I think that you know the, the internet's changed how like we desire it changes how we love um and there's there's sort of like there's like elements of this that i that you know we were we attack the symptom but not the root cause like i don't think we like truly understand how how damaging it is to sort of always be like gazing at something that or, or, or at least having like this parallel world that has all these things we can never really touch or engage with yeah. Um, and, and it makes, uh, actually like accomplishing or achieving or grasping the things that you want so empty because it's, it never lives to the hype. Like anytime you order anything off online, it's always like divorced from the marketing material and you're just holding it and you're like, okay, well what now? And really what now just means like, oh, I'm going to look at more stuff that I can buy or I'm going to alter myself even more to this other certain extent. Um, and that's actually a lot 
like that's actually how transition works for a lot of people too, where like you get to a certain point. Like I remember when I like first got on hormones, I was ecstatic and the changes were coming in really happy, really, really fast. And I was really happy about it. Um, and then I started hitting a plateau because there's only so many things that hormones can do to a male body to make it look female. Um, and then like my dysphoria, my discomfort with my body, like it just moved into the places that hormones weren't touching. So it was like the size of my hands, the shape of my face, the size of my rib cage, like these things that were more permanent and demanded more like extreme alterations to get to the point where I would actually look convincingly female, but that's not even possible. And even if I were to look convincingly female, I would never actually be a woman. Um, But it's, it's like, you know, it's like transgenderism is that sort of internet longing, like concentrated. Um, and, and there are a lot of things that are like that. I think the bodybuilding is, is definitely one way that it's similar, like how with fillers and everything, like, I think there's a lot of overlap with all that, all that stuff, but I think there are just different groups that are vulnerable to these different things for different reasons. I, I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, I mean, I, I do think that everyone's sort of vulnerable to it though. Like, you know, you even think about Pinterest and like something that's as benign as like dark academia or like aesthetics that like we're constantly kind of chasing, but can never really capture. And, um, you know, people talk a lot about like liminal spaces and like nostalgia for things that like, you know, maybe they never experienced. And I think it's, it's just a, a, a less destructive version of what, what you went through. Like, you know, me wishing I could be at, you know, like, God help me for saying this, but like Hogwarts is like, you know, it, it is like how much of that is a product of just like staring into the abyss of Pinterest and Tumblr for over a decade. And then it's like, I, you know, I have some kind of memory of the image, but I've never experienced it. Yeah. And you know, even now, even now that I realize like transition isn't, isn't going to solve my problems. Like I still find myself like chasing those kinds of aesthetics and wishing I was like, you know, maybe born 20 years earlier or something like, um, it doesn't really change. And, and I think that it is, I think the screen time is directly related to that. But I also think it's just that like life is so fragile, like it's so fast paced now like it's there's not a lot of stability there aren't like a lot of avenues for like creating meaningful connections anymore so like these connections that you make in your own head are almost more powerful than I don't think they're actually more powerful but in the moment they seem more powerful than like the connections you have to the place that you're in or the or the people that surround you yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I think it, it's, there's definitely, it's, it creates the illusion of a life that you could be living, but you aren't. And then you take where you are for granted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that's absolutely happening. I mean, I remember moving like out of um, where I live and going to college. Like I idealized this like Rust Belt town in upstate New York, like, like crazy just because it wasn't, where I was living. And then once I was actually living there for a few years, I was like, Oh, this actually really sucks. Um, but it, you know, I eventually like I wanted to go somewhere else and I didn't really know where to go. And, but there's nowhere like trying to establish roots is not something that the internet wants you to do really. Uh, Definitely. I mean, this is like, I don't know if this is, quite the same thing, but I was thinking like, is it healthy that like we're able to maintain these like long distance friendships? You know, like there's something about that. that's like, really, it's really beautiful that I, you know, my best friend lives in Texas and I can talk to him like whenever the hell I want. But also like if I'm constantly like, you know, if I'm at Walgreens and I see something funny and I sent him a, a, a picture of that and I'm constantly like looking at my phone and you know, I'm, I'm walking through Chicago and I'm like, oh, you know, like he'd love this. Like, is that like, could I be using that time to establish connections where I am? Like it does, is it, is the thing that's over there always overpowering what's over here? It's 
a good question. Um, I like, you know, like you said, there is something beautiful about that, that you can establish a, a connection with somebody online. But I think to a certain extent, like all online relationships are parasocial in a certain way. Cause you're not actually like you're sharing thoughts, you're sharing ideas, but you're not sharing time. I mean, you sort of are sharing time, but you're not sharing anything physical. You're sharing the idea of yourself with someone else, but you're not actually sharing yourself. Like you're not in the room. Um, you aren't sharing meals. You aren't bonding like physically in any kind of way. Um, you're not in the same place at the same time. So it's, it's all kind of a little bit disjointed. And I think this is why a lot of long distance relationships end up splitting or they be like, they totally grow into different people because they're in totally different social contexts that they can't actually like understand each other through. I mean, the other piece of that too is like how much of that relationship is one person projecting on the other or both people projecting on each other. Like I read this uh, and I talked about it in my Substack a little bit, this really interesting account of a long distance internet relationship from the mid nineties. And so that this guy like falls in love with this woman via chat room and they chat and he finally goes and visits her and there's no chemistry and he leaves really disappointed. And while he's kind of mourning this relationship, he starts reading over the chat logs and he realizes that like he was interpreting like very simple statements as being something more than they were and kind of like filling in the blanks in the same way that we like fill in the blanks when we're like, reading a book and imagine that the protagonist has green eyes, even though the author never said they had green eyes. And, you know, like I have to wonder, like how much of our online friendships, like are, you know, we projecting a, a piece of a personality that can't really be conveyed through text. I, I've had this exact experience over the course of this year, actually. Um, I, I had this like terrible breakup, um, with with uh, an, with a girlfriend of mine of, of many years, like since high school, um, and I think that was last year though. That was in 2020. But I like I almost immediately like glommed on to this guy I met um, through Discord, um, and he lives in he lives in in Europe. So like I'm not gonna you know there's no chance of, of me seeing him anytime soon. But I like. I became very heavily infatuated with him without even so much as like a picture. Um, and I like, I kept what I kept doing what I thought was flirting and he was just like responding to me as a friend and it got really awkward after a while. Um, we're still friends now, but for a few months there, like I had this like whole sort of semi relationship in my head that just, wasn't really there and yeah no that that projection is is very much real and you know the lack of body language I think makes makes it so much easier to fill to make your mind fill in those blanks for you it feels like we're just sort of like constantly writing like a novel of our lives you know <laughs> like that's what the whole internet is it's just like we're all like writing a book and we're the main character and you know other people are secondary characters it's it's a very isolating sort of sort of thing. Um, I used to, I used to like more overtly think that, especially when I was a teenager and I was a lot more selfish. Like I I used to think like oh this is like a book of my life or whatever. But I think partially because of that, I kept cycling through all these different online identities because I almost didn't want there to be a record. Um, especially as my personality changed sort of naturally over the years, like. I just, you know, I would just throw away completely who I used to be. And so even though this is like a constant novelization, like I'm also at the same time, like trying to jettison everything that was before, because I don't want there to be change. I want to be the perfect main character who doesn't have to do anything. Um, I Not anymore, I guess, like I'm becoming an adult, but that's, that's how it was like, like basically since I started the, started using the internet. Oh, me too. I I mean, I still do this. I'll like purge everything. Like I, I'll, and I'll sometimes like remember weird phases I went through. Like today I was thinking like, I used to like have a live journal 
that like in my head was like this this isn't going to make any sense at all it was like from the perspective of like a male anime character who was actually a real person I like but I had like an anime (laughs) avatar that I drew like fan art of and his name was Giovanni but it was also me and I'm like you know that's it that's just like playing you know that's like having an imaginary friend or like playing as a kid and I was a kid but also like I can't imagine like that somehow being like looked at by an adult or being like crystallized and like like oh this is you know cat is actually giovanni a, you know a possibly japanese man you know like it's like <laughs> but i feel like that's just that's the, you know there's so much of that online I'm, and i'm kind of glad i got rid of it but i don't know it's like <laughs> part of my evolution of self yeah um But it's almost tragic in a certain way because, like, before the internet, you could have just, like, been drawing, like, pictures of Giovanni by hand and no one would ever have to see it. And then your mom would just, like, keep it in a box somewhere and then bring it up later to, like, embarrass you or something. Like, but it's a nice childhood memory, you know? And it's kind of sad that, like, if you get any kind of attention online ever, and I I think most people do eventually get a certain amount a, a larger spike in their attention at certain points in their life. And it's usually over something really cringe. It's just really sad that like, you can't hold on to those memories and you can't like laugh on, you can't really laugh about them or you can't like, maybe for some people they can, but like when you're a kid and you get like a million people telling you like your drawing sucks or like, this is really annoying and you're a really bad person or whatever. Like you don't want to hold on to that ever. And you don't just see it as like a, a phase in your life, like you hold on to it and you think like, oh, I was a really annoying person. I'm a bad person, et cetera, et cetera. So you do want to like throw it away. And that's really, it's really sad, I think. I, I think you're totally right about like, you know, it used to be these things were kept in a box by your parents and now it's just sort of like either you delete it or people make fun of you ruthlessly. I mean, I think a lot of, and this happens all the time, but this one example always stands out to me. There is a, um, a vlogger, uh, Apple Milk 1989, I think. And, you know, it, she was widely considered like very annoying. She was kind of like a weeaboo, whatever. She did these like little YouTube videos of her speaking Japanese. And it was like someone found her live journal from when she was like 10, you know, she was like super young. And she, she also it was like a similar thing of like what I described. Like she like lied about being like from Japan and like it was like implied she had like magical powers or something and everyone you know by the time she was in her 20s was like she was a you know she was a compulsive liar from day one and it's like she was a little girl and she was playing dolls and the way she played dolls just ended up being manifested on live journal and now people are you know she probably hates herself now and hates who she was then because all she has is like negative feedback from strangers about how very childlike childish things that a child was doing is like a great testament to how she's you know a sociopath or something yeah and I see this a lot lately um on I think maybe only because I'm sort of looking for it um in recent weeks I've spent a lot of time on Twitter like pointing out moments where radical feminists like like ruthlessly attack like teenage boys who have an interest in transitioning and like call them all sorts of things like implied there that they're like a potential future murderer that they're going to be a serial rapist that they're like taking time bomb or that they're doing this misogynistic thing and that and it's like but there's no sort of understanding like okay this is a child who has a delusion that they are the other sex um, and I hold on to that. I, I'm very like, you know, I, I, I try to like show this to other people who have concerns about like transition just because it's like, you know, this kind of attacking children thing is not going to end well, especially when you are, when they're on the path to being medicalized for the rest of their lives. Like they're probably not going to want to desist from this identity, um, if people are like accusing them as boys of, of being like potential violent offenders. Um, but it's like, it's not, it's not specific to radical feminists. I don't think, I think this happens like all the time everywhere with anything children do is 
adults projecting the worst of the worst on them without any sort of like realization, like these are kids. They don't really understand how the world works yet. They're going through a lot probably. And they're probably going to change a lot too. Like, they're not going to be the same. They might be 13 now, but they're not going to be the same person when they're 23. Um, But that just seems to happen a lot because it, it provides really good content because it's kind of weird. It's kind of cringy. It's like, or maybe you already have like a latent disgust towards a certain thing or whatever. Like, I think this, this happens very, very frequently. And even people who say they don't participate in it or say that this is like, you know, a bad thing to do to children, like eventually they do it too. Um, And sometimes they don't even realize they're making fun of a kid. Totally. I mean, I I think it's partially because we don't know where to place children or, you know, especially teenagers for that matter in our society. It's like we simultaneously are like, you know, trust kids, trust teenagers, listen to them, which I think is is great on one hand because it can, you know, the the positives of that are like, you know, if someone has a a learning disability, they could perhaps have the opportunity to find a, you know, a better classroom style for them, or if they're experiencing abuse, it's not just brushed under the rug, you know, in the best case scenario. But then, you know, the, the other side of that is like, we forget, like, there's still kids. So like, if a, you know, an an 11 year old wants to, uh, get some kind of intense body modification, um, you know, they're 11 and they have the the context and the experience of an 11-year-old and their tastes are going to change and they don't have the self-knowledge and adults should be there to put up these kinds of boundaries. Um, it, and it's it's really weird. Like I, we live in a world where it's like we, we can trust, you know, a 10-year-old to tell you everything about who they are, but then if an 18 year old dates a 30 year old, it's like, you know, we need a round table discussion. Is this ethical? I mean, it's just a very weird, weird, you know, uh, mixing of beliefs. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like when you are a literal child, you're, you're totally responsible for everything that you do, despite literally not having any sense of responsibility whatsoever. Cause you are still a child and you need to be taken care of. And then like, once you're like, at the age where you do need to start taking responsibility and you do need to start like experiencing the consequences of reaction. That's also when people step in and say, no, actually you don't. And you're like a small baby that needs to be protected for the rest of your life. It's interesting also that like, we don't really give tools to pair, or at least it seems like we, you know, the mainstream conversations about these issues, like don't really equip parents with, you know, where do you draw the line between my my child is suffering and I need to find the best way to help them. And my child is a child and I need to put a boundary up as a parent. I don't know where that line is either. Um, I, I, the, I mean, I'm, I'm young and I don't have kids. I'm 23. So I, I don't know. Um, and, and what's really upsetting is that all the guides that exist right now for like how you're supposed to like, handle kids on the internet is they're coming from the people that want kids to be on the internet as much as possible. So there's not really any sort of good guidance. It's all intuition. And even though intuition, I think is important in raising a kid, like it's, it can't fill in every gap and it's going to have failures. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know on, on that front, like it's going to be, I don't know. It's it's pretty bad right now. It's yeah. I mean, it's 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 very. It's I mean, it's the wild west. I think where there's not enough like you know we don't have any like shared sort of expectations of what it means to be a kid, what it means to be a teenager, what it means to be an adult. So everyone's kind of fluidly moving, you know, through you know from one box to the other, which is obviously you know there's some funny manifestations of that, but there's obviously some very dark ones that are just. It's, I don't know. I feel like we're all fumbling in the dark right now. Yeah. I I mean, just the mere question of what does it mean to be a person? Like, or what does like, what gives us meaning in our lives, like has changed so radically in the last like 15 years or so. And I think specifically because of the internet and because of social media, like it's, it's changed a lot of things in ways that 
can't be reversed. And, and a lot of people are very eager to just say like, okay, well let's move on. Like, this is just like what it is. But there are a lot of people that are, I think there's two tendencies that are just really bad when, when dealing with the internet, one of them is like, well, we need to get rid of it, which I have been guilty of thinking very recently, actually. Um, but I don't think that's possible. And I don't think it was, I don't think it's going to solve like what damage it's already done. Um, and secondly, the, the other one is like, well, you know, it's whatever, it's fine. It's like a nudge, you know, it's just, it's just a little step forward for humanity. Um, but there's no real reckoning with the harms that it can do. Um, and there aren't all that many people that are trying to find a, uh, a pragmatic way forward in how to deal with the consequences that this has had on us. I think part of it is because we don't really have, we don't like, we don't really know what the internet is. Like, is it a place that needs to be governed? You know, is it a tool? Is it, you know, a way we communicate? Like there's, I don't think anyone could really describe what the internet is. If you like, if you, or they could, but there's no, like, we don't really agree on, on what role it should play or what role it, it does play. I mean, as it stands now, it feels like for me, it feels like it's a place that, you know, you know, you can't turn it off. You're, you're kind of always there, even when you're not there. And that's, that's confusing. I mean, it's, it's like the astral realm kind of, you know, it's like, how do you, like, <laughs> if you believe, if you were like a magician and you believed in the astral realm, what kind of protections would you put up there? I mean, this is getting, I'm getting into like crazy person talk, but it's, I, I think that's like the most essential questions are completely unanswered. I don't think that's crazy person talk at all. I think that's actually a very rational way of looking at it. And I think increasingly like that's the direction that we're going in. I think that's what the whole metaverse project is about. Um, have you like, have you heard about the whole like untacked experiment in South, um, South Korea? No, I haven't. Um, well right now, like they are attempting to create the, the South South Korean government is attempting to create a society with as little human interaction as possible. Um, and basically trying to automate all aspects of life. Um, like having Alexa do everything for people in elder care, having students like live in their own specific pods. And, you know, when they rent books, there's no one at the counter. It's literally just a machine doing it for them. Like, all this crazy stuff and they're, and they're doing it specifically as a response to COVID-19. Um, and it's sort of a pilot program related to the world economic forums, like great reset thing. And one of the crown jewels of this whole thing was making a metaverse version in VR of city hall where you can get like very basic, like municipal um, documents or you know, fines or penalties, like you can do basic municipal like processes via the VR version of the city hall rather than actually showing up, um, which, you know, does imply that this is a place like it is. a. It's not even a physical place. It's like a metaphysical place because it's not really stored. I mean, it is stored in, 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 a few different servers, but it's not sort of one, it's not in one place and no one using it is in the same place. So it, like, I guess metaphysical place is the best way to explain it. But I think the question of like who governs it is an important one that is, that has sort of been asked, but not fully. And I think it's pretty clear that like the way things are going right now, it's just going to be a bunch of like faceless bureaucratic technocrat type people who aren't elected but have total control over like who is communicating with who and when and how yeah i mean you want you know you want your you want fascism it you kind of already have it in some online spaces i mean i think like maybe you know like multiple different kinds of governance exists depending on which, you know, which part of the internet you, you spend the most time on. Um, and I, I you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, 
I don't think there are online spaces where like, I don't think there's a diversity of like what values are uplifted. There's a diversity of like what types of governance exist and they all kind of roughly have the same, have the same values. Um, Man, that, that South Korea project though is like really, it's really spooky. Oh yeah. I was, (laughs) that put me in a bad place for a few days after reading that. It's like, I mean, I wouldn't think it's, here. here's like, you know, like my fucked up take. It wouldn't be so bad, I think, if like everyone who's engaging in it is an adult. But I think there's like this like weird short-sightedness that for the internet to, like in the best of situations for it to be like beneficial for you, you need to have like been molded by the physical world. Like you can't, you can't be like purely digital um, because then you, I mean, it's, it's like they, like a willful forgetfulness that like you can't, you need to exercise. You need to, you, you need to have at least been shaped by the real before you completely become a ghost. I think even with this project, I mean, people still, will have to exist in the physical world. I don't think it is a question of like, whether you're going to become a full ghost. I think it's more a question of like, whether this metaphysical realm is become like, it guides what we do in the physical realm. Like, I think like it, I'm thinking about like Fitbits or like Apple watches or whatever that like track your biometrics and tell you like when you have to step and do all this and whatever, like that's already like a soft metaverse sort of thing is cause it's, it's something powered by a rudimentary artificial intelligence telling you when exactly you have to do X at what time and you have to carry it out in the real world. Now, whether you want to do it or not is up to you, but like, how long will it actually be up to you? And at what point does it start like affecting like your social credit score, for instance? That's, I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's it. God, it's, there's so many ways that it could get super spooky. I mean, the social credit score thing scares the crap out of me as someone with like no filter or like any idea of what I'm talking about at any given time. I mean, it, it sounds silly, but like, I'd be so fucked. And I mean, so would a lot of people like it's, it's so much, it's so much pressure to have a, have a social credit score. It, it's, it can only really go badly. (laughs) Right. There's like, there's no, there's no way that it's, it's like too scary to even think about. I mean, I'm, I'm underplaying it. There's like, it's a, it, there's, there, there's no escape. (laughs) It's just, that's hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there will be, like in any historical era, I mean, like in the 20th century with the rise of like communism, fascism and stuff, I mean, people felt that way too. Like, oh, there is no escape. But I mean, you know, these things sort of play themselves out. Like there are always um, choices to be made. There's always flaws in the system. It's never as perfect as, as it pretends to be, even if it is run by like a tech overlord that doesn't actually oversee anything, but sees everything. So it's, it's hard to say how, I I think we just don't know what the weaknesses would be yet because it hasn't happened yet, but it very much is in the cards. Um, I keep thinking about like, you know, people think that it's just like a conspiracy theory right now, but like, it's insane to me that they think that like the great reset stuff. Um, Cause like, it's literally like what the world economic forum is talking about. And that's like all the most powerful people in the world. And somehow like, that's just a conspiracy theory. Like how can you be so crazy to think that they're going to do climate lockdowns or social credit scores, whatever. And it's like, cause I mean, they talk like <laughs> they're open talking about it like I don't know what you want like what more do you want like it's evidence like this is something that they they've been cooking up for a while now it's not it's not like random um but I'm also sure that the people that think it's a crazy conspiracy now are going to be like all on board later when it actually happens so 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's hard, I, you know, and I don't blame people who think it's a conspiracy theory because it's hard to know what to trust and how to, inter- like, how to even interpret official documents and, like, what's a thought experiment and what's something that's really going to happen. I'm, I'm kind of more, um, I'm more, you know, on, on your side of things where <laughs> I'm, like, constantly, like, harassing my loved ones about how scared I am. Uh, but, you know, I mean, to, to circle back to this idea of, like, we don't know where the blind spots are, um, I can't help but think of, like, heavily policed children's games of, you know, like the, the 2000s, like Toontown and Habbo Hotel and Neopets. And, and, you know, like, a lot of abuse and stuff ha- still happened on those platforms despite um, really strong censorship. And I, you know, I bring up abuse because it, it just it underscored like how if you really are intent on doing something in this case, unfortunately, like the awful, uh, you know, motive of, you know, abusing a child, uh, you find ways around any number of rules, even like technologically imposed rules. People make up their own languages and, you know, other people in the ecosystem learn, learn the lingo. And it's kind of incredible what people can get past, like even through the strongest filters imaginable. Like, I was like sexually harassed on Neopets and like you couldn't say anything even approximate, you know, approximating a sexual word, but people figure it out. If they, if it, look, if you want to talk about your dick to a 12 year old, you're going to, you know, <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way, which is terrible and makes it, you know, makes it a very hard problem to solve. But there's also like a positive version of that, which is like, you know, activism and, and organizing and connecting with other people. Um, unfortunately, the examples I happen to know are just like completely horrifying. Yeah, I, I, thinking about the whole like online grooming thing, like I, I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on games like that just because I wasn't even I was I was not social online, much less in real life. But I was online a lot, and like I remember that there were like very strict censors, but it's like. When it comes to something like grooming, it's it, it takes a certain amount of social tact, even in real life. And really the only, like, like before the internet, like the way that you protect your child from getting groomed is to like physically remove them from the situation. It, it, no amount of like, it, it, even in schools, like if there were like speech codes on like, you can't say these specific words, like, somebody trying to abuse a child is still going to be able to abuse a child, but the way that you can stop it from happening is just to like remove the child from the vicinity. But online you kind of can't. Um, And every time your child like boots up whatever game that they're going to be on, like there will always be a non-zero chance that there is like a pedophile just lurking. Um, And they'll figure out a way to get past the censors and the kid's not going to know what the hell's going on. Um, and you probably won't either because you know, how many times I remember, like I remember in the two thousands, like whenever people, whenever like Disney channel was like, go to Disney.com and blah, blah, blah. Like, but have your parents permission, like have your parents supervision. Like I wonder how many parents actually ever did supervise their kids online. Cause it never happened to me. So you know, I, not never. Um, there were definitely times, but like by the time I was eleven, like I was kind of just on my own. Like no one was really looking at what I was doing. So, yeah, it's I don't know how to like the like my knee jerk reaction to this is just like keep your kids off the internet. But the problem there is like they will need to know how to use it as adults. So, well, it also like alienates them from connecting with other kids which is i mean it, it's it, it is just like an impossible thing to unpack like i have no idea what supervising your child online would even look like does it mean sitting down next to them that feels like you know you're infringing on their autonomy does it mean like reviewing everything they've done but you you know they should have some element of privacy but you can't, but at the same time you can't trust them to have any privacy so it's 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 i, I think like a, it's we just haven't really, and again, like part of it is because we don't know what the internet is 
and mm-hmm. we, like simultaneously take it very seriously and not seriously at all. Like we, you know, we live in a, a world where we genuinely believe that like trolls harassing you on Twitter is tantamount to physical violence. And I think actually in some cases that's true. I don't think that's ridiculous, but then like internet culture reporting is still in the style section. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we, it's, it's such a weird like we don't know how to grapple with it and it's it like something needs to change there's definitely like people doing like real work on on internet culture there's you know academics there's sociologists who are completely dedicated to it but all of that stuff is like siloed away and not not really uh something that the mainstream is consuming yeah um i think you saying that it's like in the style section too. I feel like that's also very deliberate because there's a lot of stuff that happens online. Most things that happen online have like massive political stakes now, like absolutely huge. And, and like online mobs are really like the way that you police discourse. Um, and this is something that like Amy Therese brings up a lot. Um, we talked about her the last time that we talked to, but like she's really good at pointing that out that like, this is where politics happens and anybody trying to pretend like that that's not the case, you know, they're actually hedging their own political interests. Well, yeah. And I mean, like you see when people, you know, people attack Amy, like I, I under, there's some, there's some criticisms of some of the things she says, but like the fact of the matter is, a lot of people, a lot of important people know who she is. And I don't, you know, if she was really just some like irrelevant woman who, you know, like is just like tweeting out into the void, like think tanks and journalists and politicians wouldn't know her name. And we're like so afraid of acknowledging like, actually, yeah, like tweets, tweets matter a lot. They often matter in different ways than, you know, the mainstream media would have you believe, but they, they have a real influence on on culture. And I, I think like, a, you know, it's not that like culture is stuck. It's that the ways in which culture is moving and evolving, we like, we don't register as change. Yeah. Yeah, because it, like it happens right before our eyes, but we don't, like we're getting nudged constantly, especially when we're online. Like my, like my beliefs change like this year especially like have changed so dramatically from like uh, on basically every issue and I don't think that that means that I've like totally shifted political camps I think the last time that that happened was like like when I first like disavowed leftism or whatever but like I'm still like in the same place like ideologically I think but like my takes on most things have evolved really dramatically recently and it has been specifically through internet exposure that 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 kind of evolution has taken place is by talking to like really interesting people or by seeing like all these different kinds of takes from people I don't even interact with um it does color how you think of the world when that is your world and I think it's you know, as, as much as everyone wants to claim that they're, you know, always out there touching grass, I think, you know, it, it, I mean, it is our world, our, our world is, or it's, it's a parallel world that, that most of us are almost completely uh, plugged into. Yeah. And yeah, there's, you kind of can't anymore. You kind of can't unplug anymore. You can take breaks from time to time. And I'm, positive that I, I should have taken one a few times at this point and I've, I've tried and, and haven't been able to um, but you can't like unplug completely because that's that's kind of where everything happens um, and if you were to unplug completely then when you showed up to work and your boss is just like telling you what to do and what to think. And this is the new HR regime and et cetera, et cetera. Like you wouldn't have a way of parsing that if you weren't online in any capacity. Cause that's where you like, you can do your own research and you can like look into things more and you can see people criticize like what's going on. Whereas if you were completely offline, you would just sort of take it as is, you know, but then there's also the flip side where like you, 
might end up actually like believing everything that your HR department tells you to do. So um, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but like that's where popular inquiry takes place now. It's not just like privately at home. It still is privately at home, but it's also in front of like everyone all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I also have sort of like this twin worry about like if too many things move into group chats and like folks who either aren't connected or possibly even like pariahs, like lose the privilege of seeing the debates happen. And then you kind of just have to navigate it totally on your own, which might not be such a bad thing, but I mean, it's, it's valuable to see dissent. Um, even if you, you know, you're not on the same page as everyone. Um, there's like, you know, as things become more and more policed, there's, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm worried about like being, you know, being blocked by everyone, not being able to see like what conversations are happening. And then it's like, well, something might slip through the cracks on, on my radar. And I, you know, I can't fully trust myself to be the arbiter of everything. And I do want to trust strangers online sometimes, or like at least let them plant some seeds in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's really the only way that you can like, maybe not the only way, but it's, it's one of the only ways today that you can sort of evolve with people um, and, and try to make sense of the world around you as, as you know it. I, I, like, I don't know. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that. That was, that was, that was brilliant. Um, well, I'm going to, that might be a good place to close it. I've, I feel like I've kept you here for a very long time, but um, thank you for coming on. I always really enjoy talking to you. You're, you're very, I don't know. You're just, you're, you're great to talk to. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. No, I like talking to you too. It's, it's nice to ha- like speak to a sort of kindred spirit in all of this who, recognizes that this is massive like way more massive than people usually recognize Oh